Again, a warm welcome to everybody who is watching, and I hope that your Bibles are there. And I actually want you to keep your finger in Acts or in Hebrews chapter 10, but then if you would, kind of move yourself along to Acts as well. There's a couple of passages in Acts, Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 19 that I would like to read for us this morning. This is a special day. This is an historical day in the life of Calvary Baptist Church. And whether you are watching online, whether you are at 30 Aldershot Street, gathered as our first attempt at a bit of a hybrid church gathering, and for all of those, the music team now and all of the tech people involved are now at different places on our church offices, and they're now watching me on a television screen as well, but at least they're together, and we've tried our very best with all of the things that we need to do, being in each side of people's bubbles, making sure we're washing our hands frequently, using masks when we need to, all of the things that have to happen, but we are also praying that our government and our health department will see the need to allow human beings to interact I won't go into all of the statistics on this, but I am burdened for our country, our province, our city, our neighborhoods. I, I, am an, I do feel like I am a frontline worker as a pastor. My phone and my emails never stop when it comes to people that are hurting, people that are depressed, people that are struggling with uh, lost jobs or wages, marriages that are struggling, wayward children. And all of these things. But I want to take some time today on this inaugural day. This will go down in the history of Calvary Baptist Church. Calvary Baptist Church was established in Christmas of 1993. And from that day to this one, we've never experienced this. This is truly new. If you think back in its history, maybe 9-11 would be the closest thing to a, a uh, history of Something that happened that we'll never forget. And everybody will remember where they were when that happened. I don't think 2020, the year of Snowmageddon, and now the coronavirus, this will be the things that we talk about for the rest of our lives, no doubt. But yet, history has a way of dimming things. Let me give you a couple of names this morning. John Leonard Dober and David Nietzscheman. The world was not worthy of them, so we say. I apologize. Apparently, we've had some technical difficulties with my mouthpiece, so I apologize to you. And hopefully now you can hear me speak a little bit more clearly. And uh, that probably is the reason why I don't have my own voice inside my own head. Because if you probably see here, I'm wired up on several things. I got more packs Hopefully no water will come down upon me because I'd probably be electrocuted right in front of you. But let's jump back into this again. I wanted to talk about two names, Leonard, John Leonard Dober and David Nietzscheman. See, you probably have never heard those names before. John was a potter by trade, and David was a carpenter. They are very ordinary occupations, but they are very extraordinary men. In history, they are men who left the security, now watch this, of their jobs and families in Copenhagen to become the very first Moravian missionaries in 1732. John and David, I believe, are unsung heroes of the faith. Their history is this. They were willing to be sold as slaves in order to have the opportunity to reach the slaves of the West Indies for Jesus. 
Their life's purpose, as they wrote, was to follow the Lamb who had given them, given His life for them and for all the souls of the world. And their mission statement was this, Our Lamb has conquered, let us follow Him. Now there's something to put on a mug or a t-shirt. Put that up on the wall of your home. The men felt that their sacrifice paled in comparison to the sacrifice of their Savior. They loved Jesus with everything they were and did and desired to walk in obedience to Him. Even though they knew that God had called them, they knew that the God who called them is the God who gives courage and grace and anointing for the task. Even to spend a life of hard toil with meager provisions and hardship, they experienced and modeled the truth of Philippians 4.13. I, we, us, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even as we have a very abnormal first gathering as a church. It is said and written that as the boat pulled away with these men and the shore on the shore was their family and friends who wept for their brothers and uh, sisters in Christ, one of these men yelled across the sea to the shore, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And this story has so affected me that many of you at Calvary Baptist will know that when I pray, I often pray and say, Lord, as a reward for the suffering of your son, would you save so-and-so or work in so-and-so's life? It is from this. This has rocked my world. But what was also amazing about these two men and their fellow Moravians is that this was a movement that paved the way for men like William Carey and Adniram Judson and David Livingston and Jim Elliott and Hudson Taylor. See, there's another name that maybe some of you right now watching this may have heard of. Many of you haven't. Is the name by Count Nicholas Ludwig, Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf was born in May of 1700 and he died in May of 1760. This man saved by God and then used by God for his church. And he used his whole fortune to foster the Moravian missions movement. And in fact, started what was called the 100-year prayer meeting. For more than 100 years, beginning on August the 26th, this month of 1727, there was a Moravian brother or sister somewhere engaged in prayer 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Among the brethren, this meeting was known as the hourly intercession. There was a literal prayer without ceasing for 100 years. The prayer focus soon moved from those in, in their immediate vicinity to Europe and around the world. And by the way... Friends, it is Moravians and a result of this prayer meeting that Moravian missionaries went to the shores of Labrador and up and down the coast. And there are still evidences of the Moravian mission movement in Labrador to this day. Five years into this prayer meeting, John Dober and David Nietzscheman responded to the call of missions. So on this Sunday, this historical Sunday in the life of our church, Here's the big idea I want to take us through this morning. How will God, here is 2020, it's a nice round number. 
We're in August now. We only have a few short months before this year is behind us. So I want to ask, from the youngest of you right now to the oldest of you, male and female, singles and marrieds, uh, grandparents and all, how is God going to work at Calvary Baptist Church in us collectively and individually to accomplish His will and His purpose for the next 30 years? Now, you might be saying, Steve, you've gone out of your mind. I'm trying to get, figure out how to get through to tomorrow. I get it. But as Christians, death could not hold him. The veil tore before him. You silenced the host of sin and grave. Do you think the coronavirus or inconvenient mask wearing or restrictions on our gathering should rob the Christian of his joy or her joy or our ability to believe that God can and will do anything? Today is a very unique experience for us all. I'm preaching to you in likely multiple locations. But I will tell you this. Debbie and I are from Newfoundland and Labrador, and we've had the joy of moving back here in January of 2015. And I can say honestly, before the living God, that I love my church family, Calvary Baptist Church. I love you. And not a day goes by that I am not reminded of Philippians chapter 1, where Paul under house arrest said to a similar church, as I am saying now, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he, Christ, who began a good work in you and in us, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And here's my prayer for you and I, that your love, our love, our church's love, to each other, to our neighborhoods, to the city of St. John's, to the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, to the country of Canada and beyond, that our love would abound more and more, and not just weird Hollywood love, but love that is grounded in knowledge and discernment. Why? So that we may approve what is excellent, that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Oh, Calvary, wherever you are, and friends and visitors, if you are watching in with us today, I need you to know that this church family, as us as leaders, we want our friendships, our relationships to display God's provision. And so, today, I come to you with a completely different perspective than I'm normally given I'm not there at 30 Aldershot Street. I'm not in the pulpit that I have come to know. I'm not there to see your faces and read your body language and get a sense of the emotions of the room. Now I come to you from email chats and Zoom times and Facebook and phone calls and live streams. But I still come to you with a challenge from God's Word about God's Word and what it means to apply God's Word. And my first two points are very simple. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture for us. And then after that, I want to just quickly walk us through Hebrews 10 and then ask God to move amongst us. Maybe, dare I say, in the way he moved to begin the Moravian missions movement. My first two points are simply observations from Scripture. 
My big idea is how does God work in his church and how is God going to work in us and through us in our church in this city, in this province, in this country. So go with me to Acts chapter 13 and I want to read verses 1 to 3. Acts chapter 13 verses 1 to 3 because here's my first point. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. We are going to see as a church, we will see God work when his church worships and prays. Why am I and the leaders of our church passionate, urgent, think it's important for us to gather as a church? Why I long for our government and our health department to understand that it is important to let people gather together safely, with wisdom, with understanding. But we still need human interaction. And I believe we are seeing, we will see God work when his church worships and prays. In he, in, sorry, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, Luke records for us, now there were in the church at Antioch. Antioch was that rogue and, 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 and almost rebellious church that, round, uh, that God started. And they were at Antioch with prophets and teachers. And then there's a list of names, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. And then there was Manea and a lifelong friend who was, he was a friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul who would become Paul. And notice this, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now watch this in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. O Calvary Baptist, in the midst of this a global pandemic where now all of the second guessing is happening, where we are trying to figure out what normal looks like. What's the new normal? Will we ever get to the old normal? What is life going to be like? I want you to know what is constant. Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, forever. I want you to realize that when we gather together, we will see God work when we worship and when we pray. The Moravians sent missionaries Literally around the world because a group of nameless, faceless men and women faithfully gathered together and worshiped God and prayed to God together. But now go up a few pages to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Go there with me as well. Because my second point for you this morning is this. We will see God work When as a church, we love, learn, and stand on the Word of God. We are going to see God work when as a church, when churches in this city, in this province, in this country, in this continent, but when Calvary Baptist Church, we will see God work when we love God's Word, we learn from God's Word, and we stand on God's Word. Paul goes to the city of Ephesus. And Luke says, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, 
They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there went out about 12 men in all. Now watch. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's the gospel, before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years, and watch what happens, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Calvary Baptist Church, on this historical Sunday, I want you to know and remember, according to Acts, when we will see God work when we love God's word, when we learn from God's word, and we stand on God's word. Here was a group of people that believed, and then Paul comes into their life and asks them, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? And they said, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And God, Paul teaches them from God's word, and they gladly submit to it. They gladly embrace it. They love the idea that God's word would teach them and tell them things, and they respond. And because of this, in the face of opposition, in the face of not everything going their way, all of Asia heard the word of God. Calvary, here's my love and my long for us as a church. That all of Newfoundland and Labrador will hear of the works and the word of God because of our excitement and our passion and our commitment to God's word. But now, for a few minutes, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Go to that passage that Paul read for us this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Because here's my main point we will see God work when his church worships and prays. We will see God work when the church loves the word of God and learns from the word of God and stands on the word of God. But Calvary, we will see God work when as a church we apply our Sunday stuff to our during the week stuff. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25. How I wish I could get every professing Christian to commit the words of that passage to memory, to think of them every day. Imagine if these words were on our coffee mugs and our t-shirts. Imagine if these words hung on your fridge or hung in your vehicle. I hope that when we get a building of our own, we will paint the walls of our corridors and our sanctuary with the words of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. But you've got to realize, Hebrews is a 13-chapter sermon. That's right, it's a sermon. It's not even a letter. It's the transcript of a sermon. It's a sermon filled with some of the most amazing statements about Jesus in all the Bible. From Hebrews chapter 1 to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 18, it's basically been one huge sermon with one main point. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior over everyone and everything. Jesus has no equal. No one can satisfy you more. Nothing can help you better. Money won't help you. A, a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend won't. Family won't. A great marriage won't. 
power or possessions won't. A job owning a company, rising for promotion, getting degrees, having the approval of others, power, fame, or prestige, none of it will help you. Alcohol won't. Drugs won't. Sex and sexuality won't. None of these things will help you like Jesus Christ. Basically, all of Hebrew screams out, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then now in 10, 19, chapter 10, 19, the preacher who has preached this full theological treatise now comes and says, here's the application. If indeed Jesus is better, and he is, and if you and I, if we believe it, and we will trust it, then something happens. Your mind, my mind, our heart, Our lifestyle changes. Everything about you and I is changed. Now listen, I'm not saying it means we're perfect, far from it. But Jesus is perfect. And it means that once you have met Jesus and you know him, you stop pretending to be perfect and have it all together. We stop being religious and we start being true followers of Christ. We desperately want to be like Christ. In the last two weeks, here's my illustration of this. Major League Baseball has restarted. Basketball has restarted. Yesterday, hockey restarted. All right? From whether it's rock stars or politicians or athletes or tragically even pastors, what do those who admire, look up to, groupies as we call them, people that love their sports team or their particular athlete, what do they do? They buy their jersey. They find out what sneakers they wear. They find out what food they eat. They find out about their exercise regime or what television shows they watch. And before you know it, there's a group of people that follow them that want to be like them. Well, Hebrew says that as Christians, we're not perfect, but we follow the one who is. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So because of that, watch this, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So I am calling on you and I in this transitional time in this time of church that's not exactly the way we would want it or the way we would plan it in a world and a neighborhood and a city where we can't do life the way we would want to do it or plan to do it. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25 lays out the blueprint for how the church should function. Kent Hughes says, the shift can be stated in various ways, from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from precept to practice, from instruction to exhortation, all of which mean one thing. The writer becomes very explicit in Hebrews 10 regarding how Christians ought to live. How do we respond to our circumstances? In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 20, the preacher wants wants us to be reminded, but he also assumes if you believe in Jesus and you trust him, then you worship him, you pray to him, you trust in who he is, what he has done, what he says about himself. You see, that's why back in Hebrews chapter 4 he said, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed 
through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. Hey, listen, if you're sitting down at church or you're here in these offices or you're at home, go back and remember when you would say, on that day I became a Christian. Do you remember what that was like when you confessed your sin and you admitted, I can't do this, and so, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. I want to confess my sin, and I want to trust in you, and I want you to be the Lord of my life. Paul, this, this writer here says, remember, hold fast to that confession. Don't let that be a distant memory of your past. Let that be something you hold to every single day. Why? Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So when you are struggling and battling depression and anxiety, when you're fussing with your spouse or you're stressed about the bills or jobs or you're, you're, you're worried about your children and their education or if they're following Jesus or what decisions they're making or how they're functioning, when you've got mom and dad that are getting older and maybe they're in nursing homes or you're dealing with the tension of unhappy relationships with a sibling or friends or you're struggling to find identity and friendship or you're struggling with your sexuality or whatever it might be, We have a high priest who knows about our weaknesses. He was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because of that, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And here's why. So we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's the preacher saying? He's saying we have access to Jesus Christ. More than that, because of Jesus and in Jesus, we have an advocate. Now look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21. We have an advocate. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, more than that, we have an intercessor. Someone, listen to thee, Jesus now lives and reigns. And what does he do this? He defends us. He holds us and sustains us. He provides for us. He makes up for our shortcomings and our weaknesses. Once again, we don't just get our sins forgiven. We have a new sheet with God. God also gives us his perfection. In other words, I trade in my resume that says, failed at this, struggled at this, can't do this, won't do this. Not only does God take that resume and burn it and tear it up then instead of getting a blank one to rewrite I get the resume of Jesus now God sees me only through the accomplishments and the perfection of Jesus Christ that's why Paul bursts into a a praise in Romans chapter 8 if God is for us who can be against us have you thought about that in the midst of this pandemic God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If God was willing to send Jesus Christ to become human, to live and suffer and die, don't you think he won't graciously give us all things? And so the rhetorical question is asked, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The answer is obviously no one because it's God who justifies. You don't justify yourself. You don't even save yourself. You don't have to keep your salvation. God has justified to you. So then the next rhetorical question, who is he that condemns? Because Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God. So before, as John Stott said, before we can see, begin to see the cross as something done for us, (coughs) excuse me, we have to see it as something done by us. (laughs) Now think about that for a few minutes. Before you're ever going to see 
The cross is something done for us. We have to see it as something done by us. So Hebrews chapter 10, three quick commands. We are commanded in 19 to 22, commanded to draw near. (coughs) Excuse me. We have this command. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near. Now notice the conditions. With a true heart, full of assurance of faith, heart sprinkled from a guilty conscience, bodies washed with pure blood. Is that not pure water? Sorry, is that not an overview of the gospel? But it's a gospel without distraction and without competitors. Did you see that? Think about it. Some of you are at the church there now and afterwards, physically distancing, you may have conversations with each other. Excuse me. And you'll be talking to each other, but maybe the person you're talking to is smiling and nodding and engaging you with conversation, but you keep seeing their eyes darting as if they see somebody else that they haven't seen now in several months, and they see them making their way out the exit. And so they're talking to you, but they're going, "I, I need to talk to him. I want to talk to that family before they leave. And all of a sudden, you realize, yeah, I'm in a conversation, but now they're distracted Or there's somebody else drawing their attention away. This is what the writer is saying. The preacher is saying, listen, you need to be wholeheartedly in tune, true-heartedly in tune with God and his gospel. That's what Jesus meant to the woman at the well when he said, when you want to worship God, you must worship him in spirit. That is, with our entire human spirit is engaged in worship. So we are commanded to draw near, and then we are commanded to hold fast. So the preacher says, if you draw near to God and hold tightly, wholeheartedly to the gospel, then you will no doubt have a hope that is in a person. Thank you, Paul. It's not an idea. Your hope is not in yourself. It's not in your circumstances. Many of you maybe have read Tim Keller's book on prayer, and I love this. He reminds us that Paul never prays for our circumstances to change, but rather for us to know Christ better. Hey, listen, I am as unhappy and dissatisfied with this form of church. I've got two things sticking in my ears. I got stuffed several things rolled over my ears. I'm hot and perspiring. I got glasses on. These ear things keep popping out. The microphone here doesn't work. I'm holding this mic. I got guys sneaking water in and out off screen. No one would choose this. And yet, the power of the gospel is my circumstances don't own me. Your circumstances don't own you. Jesus Christ is our hope, and we've got to hold fast to the hope that we have. You see, let me ask you, what do you hope in or who do you hope in? A hopeless believer is a contradiction in terms. Even in our world of chaos, we should be, we must be filled hope, hope-filled people on the planet. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. My, we have an anchor, right, that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And why am I so wound up and passionate about this? This past week I read about Professor William Marston of New York University. He asked 3,000 people this question. What have you to live for? He was shocked to discover 94% were simply enduring the present while they waited for the future. 
They were waiting for something better, waiting for the next day, the next week, the next year, waiting for someone or something. They were waiting either for someone to die, waiting for someone to be born, waiting for someone to come along, waiting for tomorrow. But the last time I checked for the Christian, our hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Is that you and me and us, Calvary Baptist Church? This means... We don't quit on God because God will never quit on us. We cling to his word. We hold fast to his church. We never stop serving and striving and giving and praying and loving. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is absolutely true. We are to be steadfast, unmovable, always working and abounding in the work of the Lord. Because our labor is never in vain. So yes, I long for the return of Christ, but I can live for Christ today. That's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I live for today. And then finally, we have a command to concentrate on stirring each other. We have a command to concentrate. Now notice I use that word concentrate because in our passage in Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25, he says, and let us consider or look for ways how to stir one another on to love and good deeds. The word there means to concentrate. It means to think about how we we engage with other believers in the church. This church. Hey, right now where you're at, look around you. For those of you in these offices, look around you. If you're at home, look at the screen and look around you. How is Christ calling us to be an example How are you and I called to help those around you to work, to show them Christ in your life? We always focus on this when we do baby dedications. And we challenge each other as a church to influence our children. But how are we going to stir? That means to point, teach, influence, motivate. When a church worships and prays is built on the word of God, then the people think about how they live as it relates to helping each other. And by the way, there's both a negative and a positive to that. You can spur one another on to good deeds or bad works. Hebrews calls us to lead others to a practical expression of love. Remember, the love chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talks about faith, hope, and love. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So if you're giving... Giving because you want power. Giving because you want control. Giving because you want prestige. Giving because you want people to look up to you, admire you. In the church, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. And so it doesn't matter what age you are, what gender you are. It doesn't matter your economic status or your marital status. It doesn't matter about your past. All that matters is we are clinging to Christ. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now put that on a t-shirt. Put that on your coffee mug at work, on your desk. Today, I want to count others more significant than myself. See, human nature will change little. And the temptation is to keep away from fellowship. And that's why he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Because some of you might think, I don't need others. Some of you are thinking, I can do it on my own. Some of you are thinking, no one wants me. And all of it are the lies from the pit of hell. You do need others in your life. You need people to love on you and be concerned about you. You need people to confront you and help you. And so the writer says, 
and also much more as the day approaching. So in other words, with an eye on the clock of worldly affairs, we are to be an encouragement. In my daily devotions on one Monday to Friday on Facebook, we're reading through the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 4, we're introduced to this guy named Joseph Barnabas. I read about him in Acts chapter 13. He was given a nickname, the son of consolation, the son of encouragement. Whether it was when he befriended Paul after his conversion or speaking on behalf of John Mark, that guy who miserably failed on a failed first missionary journey, whether it was seeing that revolutionary church in Antioch, Barnabas was always living up to his name. So let me ask you, Calvary Baptist, right now, a church where you're at, at home or in this office, where are the Barnabases of Calvary Baptist? People who will say, it's my mission to be an encouragement. I want to concentrate on stirring people on to, other, to, to stir, spur other believers forward in the Christian life, to be followers of Christ. And by the way, this means more than simply showing up. This means we come together to worship and pray, to learn together in community. So at Calvary Baptist Church, in no church should there be cliques or favorites. It should simply be we are together to worship God, to pray together for each other by name, to fellowship and have spiritual conversations, to be examples to each other and to encourage one another. And so... It's caring about yourself and others. It's being honest with yourself and others. It's creating and displaying the safest place in the world to gather and admit, I'm a sinner. I need grace. I need instruction. I need correction. I need help. I need encouragement. I need teaching. I need hope. I need answers. I need someone just to be patient with me. And I will tell you, if you come to church for yourself, you've got church wrong. So come to church in your weakness for someone else. Come to church with your victory for someone else. Come to church in your need for someone else. Come to church for your service for someone else. Do you want a better marriage? Do you want to be a better husband or a better wife? Do you want to have a better family? Do you want to be a better parent or grandparent? Do you want to be a better senior? Do you want to have better relationships? Do you want to be a better single? Being a true Christian and a true church is all about being for someone else. Christ became flesh for us. He became sin for us. He bore the penalty of death for us. He was crucified and rejected by God the Father for us. He was betrayed for us. He served God for us. He rose again for us. He lives for us, intercedes for us, is preparing a place for us, is coming back for us. He loves us and protects us and provides for us and empowers us and teaches us. And that's why we imitate Him. And if we're not careful, God will move on. Remember this quote? Christianity started out in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. And it came to North America and became a business. And I want us to be warned that if we're not careful and we let the coronavirus or we let the cares of this world or we let fear or complacency or pleasure or any of these things move and overtake us, God will move on. If you think about how God has moved over history, 
Even in Rome, when God was there and there came the right, God was at Rome for a good time, and then came the rise of Catholic dogma, which replaced the Word of God, and ritual replaced relationship, and ceremony and sacraments took the place of salvation, and then God moved on. Germany had great revival, and God had his hand on that nation, and many missionaries went forth, but history says that skepticism and rationalism and something called higher criticism and evangelism and missionary work became a thing of the past and God moved on. In England, the center of activity was biblical missions and mighty revivals were there for 100 years and they were the launching pad of world missions and men like William Carey left England for India and Hudson Taylor for China but eventually the church died and spirit lethargy spread like the plague and God moved on. And then God came to Canada and the United States. And for many years, the West has been the center of world outreach. A Christian nation that has sent out thousands of missionaries. But as we see our two nations failing spiritually, could it be that God is getting ready to move on? As the fires of evangelism go out in our country and in our churches because of worldliness and complacency and comfort, should we expect God to remain? Look at Canada and America today. We put on our nice clothes and live in our nice houses. We drive our nice cars. We come to our nice buildings. We have our nice chairs and our nice atmospheres. And we have nice sermons. And then we go eat nice meals. And then we take a nice nap with no thought to the fact that millions, billions are still without hope. And so quite simply, on this historical day, in the life of Calvary Baptist Church, in light of Acts 13 and Acts 19 and Hebrews 10, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, will you join me, Calvary Baptist Church, to worship God today and every day and to pray? That we will stand on and learn from and and read God's Word and spend time with it. And that we will apply our Christian claims to our everyday life. Every one of us. So, do we have a heart for the souls and men of our city? Do we have a desire to be discipled and be discipling? Do we have an, a heart of honesty and transparency and hopefulness about our junk for confession and repentance? We've got to draw near in prayer. We've got to hold on to the anchor of hope. And we've got to devote ourselves to the corporate church. And if we do this, Are you ready? Calvary, God won't move on. He'll move in. And God will do a work amongst us. And we won't argue about the Holy Spirit. And we won't argue about spiritual gifts. Because God's Spirit will be alive and will move. And we'll see it. And you won't be able to deny it. You won't be able to resist it. And yes, even in St. John's, Newfoundland in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, we will see hope, love, and just amazing revival set loose here. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And so, friends, we are called of God. My authority is above that of kings of the earth. By God's call and His word, I have been selected as a personal representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my master. He has chosen me to represent Him, to stand in His place, to say and do what He Himself would say and do if He were personally ministering to the very people to whom He has sent us. My voice is His voice. My acts are His acts. My doctrine is His doctrine. My commission is to do what He wants done. To say what He wants said. To be a living, modern witness in word and in deed of the divinity of His great and marvelous work. How great 
is my calling. Oh, do you know him? That's my king. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, how I pray to you right now that my friends and family, my wife who is going to join me, my daughter at home, my son and his wife and family at home, from my brothers and sisters at Christ that are at 30 Aldershot Street, from my brothers and sisters in Christ that are watching online, Lord, for friends and visitors that maybe have stumbled across our YouTube link or somehow this link has been shared with them and they've watched it live or will watch it later, please, almighty God, may your spirit work and move in all of us, starting with me. Lord, may we not grow weary in well-doing. May we not be self-centered and self-righteous. May we not be easily discouraged and put down and put off. But Lord, would you not move on but move in? Oh, Lord, may we see the church of Jesus Christ come alive in St. John's, Newfoundland. And would you start it, start it with us, not out of pride, not because we're better, but, Lord, may we scream out with Dober and Nitchum. Oh, God, would you save souls in Newfoundland and Labrador as a reward for the suffering of your son? Heal us. Come to us, oh God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.